Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Former President Donald Trump reveals more details about the FBI's search of his Florida home and the circumstances surrounding it. The Inflation Reduction Act promises to lower inflation, but is it actually going to work? We hear a perspective from a senior tax analyst. Some attorneys general are accusing BlackRock of mishandling investments by states. They say the investment company is prioritizing climate goals over pension funds. And a new border report, it shows that under the Biden administration, illegal immigrants are being detained 10 times longer than permitted. We get some analysis on this from a former ICE agent. Former President Trump has revealed more details about the circumstances surrounding the FBI's Monday search of his Mar-a-Lago home. And today's Jessica Beatty has more. Former President Trump says in early June, the DOJ and FBI asked him to put an extra lock on the door leading to where boxes are stored in Mar-a-Lago. Trump says they agreed, according to a post on Truth Social Wednesday. He's likely referring to boxes that may have been used to store presidential records. Trump writes, they were shown the secured area and the boxes themselves. Then on Monday, without notification or warning, an army of agents broke into Mar-a-Lago, went to the same storage area, and ripped open the lock that they'd asked to be installed. If what he said is true, it weakened the case that the FBI searched his house just to obtain the records. Trump's lawyer, Christina Bob, told the Epic Times Tuesday that the FBI had full access to the storage area back in June. They had access to it anyway. Nothing had been hidden and nothing had been kept secret from them, which makes this all the more ridiculous. Under the Presidential Records Act of 1978, an administration must transfer certain classified records related to the president's duties by the end of their term. But few former presidents have made that deadline, and none have been prosecuted as a result. According to the National Archives and Records Administration, Trump's team has been cooperating. Republican Senator Tim Scott told CNN Wednesday that the FBI search doesn't make sense if negotiations were continuing. I can't imagine them finding a smoking gun in the midst of what they're looking for through the Presidential Records Act. If it's only about presidential, the Presidential Record Act, that is a dangerous precedent to you, set going you, forward. The FBI raid has boosted voter enthusiasm among Republicans and independents according to a new poll by the Trafalgar Group. It found that over 83% of GOP voters and nearly 72% of independents say they're more motivated to vote in November. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The Inflation Reduction Act will soon get a vote in the House, but Democrats and Republicans are divided over its effects. We hear from a policy expert to get his take on the bill. The Inflation Reduction Act revives many of the Democrats' key priorities from the Build Back Better bill last year. New taxes on corporations, expansion of the IRS, and wide-reaching climate policies. The bill is expected to bring in about $725 billion for the federal government and spend around $430 billion. The most substantial new tax in the bill is a 15% minimum tax on corporations that make over $1 billion in revenue annually. Preston Brashers is a senior tax policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. He told the Epic Times that middle-class Americans will be left to absorb the blow through lower wages and higher prices. Another big part of the bill is expanding the IRS by 87,000 new agents and $80 billion in funding. 
Brasher says that small businesses will likely be audited more. He said, if you're a small business, a sole proprietor, if you're running your own books, a lot of the times the IRS looks at that as a prime target because you don't have the accountants that are keeping everything buttoned down necessarily. And now in terms of climate policies, the new bill would impose a number of new taxes on several of the most common types of energy, one of them being methane. Methane is commonly used to heat homes during the winter, and some are concerned about a rise in heating costs for Americans. What's more, crude oil and imported petroleum products would also see a new 16.4 cents per barrel tax. And finally, the bill would more than double the excise tax rate on coal, and more than double the tax rate on both subsurface mining and surface mining of coal. The Inflation Reduction Act now heads to the House for final approval. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has expressed support for the bill. The Internal Revenue Service is warned against using funds from the Inflation Reduction Act to audit households that make less than $400,000 a year. That's according to a letter Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen sent to IRS Commissioner Charles Reddick. The letter says the money from the bill should focus on, quote, high-end noncompliance. The new funds for the IRS are expected to collect $124 billion in tax revenue over the next decade. The legislation was approved by the Senate this weekend and is headed to the House. Prioritizing a climate agenda over profit for American pension funds. Some officials say that's what investment company BlackRock is doing. Here's that story. Investment company BlackRock manages an estimated $10 trillion. That's more than the entire GDP of some first world countries. Some of that money comes from state pension funds that were invested in BlackRock. According to some attorneys general, state law thus requires that BlackRock has to maximize its profit choosing investments that are expected to bring the highest return possible. Attorneys General from 19 states now accuse BlackRock of prioritizing the climate agenda over profit. BlackRock recently sent a letter to several states claiming it has joined climate organizations merely for dialogue. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich doesn't agree, saying BlackRock isn't focusing on dialogue only. According to the AG, anyone purchasing a BlackRock fund is forced to support climate goals, whether they like it or not. West Virginia Attorney General Patrick Morrissey accused the company of coercion, saying this is an example of a company pushing their climate agenda using investments to force companies and people to abide by their ideology. For example, the AGs accused BlackRock of pulling funds from companies that don't abide by climate goals. BlackRock has denied wrongdoing, saying it offers a wide range of products and strategies. Some critics believe that promoting green energy makes the world more reliant on communist China. That's because China dominates the production of solar panels and electric vehicle batteries, while at the same time ignores its own pollution. The U.S. still requires international travelers to show proof of COVID-19 vaccination. Now, more than a dozen GOP governors are asking President Biden to drop the mandate. 17 Republican governors sent a letter to the president urging him to lift the COVID-19 vaccine mandate on international travel. The mandate was put in place back in October of last year. The governors say that 72 countries have dropped their testing and vaccination requirements, but adults traveling to the U.S. are still required to show proof of vaccination. The letter claims the restriction is negatively impacting the supply chain and hurting the U.S. economy. Last year, the White House said the mandate, quote, enhances the safety of Americans here at home and enhances the safety of international air travel. 
And now we bring you an update on the U.S. southern border. A new report is out on the length of time illegal immigrants are detained under the Biden administration. A former agent within the investigative arm of the DHS joins us now. He sheds light on this report, as well as some of the political moves being taken or considered in response to immigration challenges. Joining us now to discuss some constructive measures to help immigration in the U.S. is Victor Avila, who is a retired special agent with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Great to speak with you today, Victor. Thank you for having me. I want to start with a new report. It shows that illegal immigrants were detained 10 times longer than permitted at the border under the Biden administration. How significant is this? It's very significant. If you recall, just last year, we had uh, almost 17,000 uh, Haitians at one point underneath a bridge in Del Rio, Texas. And um, the Biden administration didn't like that, didn't like the optics of what was uh, seen. And so what they did and what they're doing now currently is distur- distributing uh, distributing these uh, I- illegals throughout many different uh, camps, detention centers, if you will, soft-sided tent facilities that have popped up in the last year. I've visited many of them in Eagle Pass, Texas, uh, south of Laredo, in El Paso, Texas, inside Fort Bliss. They have a huge one. Uh, That's one that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the media lately, but they're processing thousands, thousands of individuals. And yes, they're detaining them uh, because they don't want them to be seen at the border. So they rather hide them in these uh, detention facilities until they can then put them on buses and airplanes to get them to their final destination in the U.S. All of it, by the way, is an illegal process at this point. You mentioned that you've done some work on the ground there. Do you think it's constructive for Texas Governor Greg Abbott to send busloads of asylum seekers to New York City, considering he alleges Biden's open border policies are overwhelming his state? Uh, I'll tell you this uh, about this, and I have strong opinions about this, because um, uh, optically and what's happening right now, if you had no other option, it it seems okay. Listen, if they're going to come in anyway, and uh, the Biden administration is going to allow millions of illegal aliens from over 150 different countries to come in, well, why not send them to New York and and Washington D.C.? But ultimately, uh, my opinion is that doesn't that doesn't solve anything. We're at one point, if you look at it, we're actually now aiding and abetting the same thing that the Biden administration has been doing for a long time since day one is flying them in to all these uh, different states. So uh, I would rather see enforcement at the border and stopping and the flow of what's happening. And that's if uh, uh, our Governor Abbott would declare an invasion to finally try to do enforce something at the line uh, instead of trying to deal with uh, what's happening after they enter. And Victor, can you explain a little bit more about what this would look like, what Governor Abbott can do? Well, it's incredible. Yeah, if uh, if uh, Governor Abbott would declare an invasion, we basically adopt our constitution. Uh, we have uh, it's two sided here. One is the state constitution of Texas. The other one is uh, our U.S. Constitution, Article One, Section Ten of the Constitution, to be able to then adopt uh, these enforcement capabilities and have our state officials, our National Guard, now act as uh, detainees. And I'm not talking about uh, you know you know, doing this kind of enforcement action. The only thing I'm asking them to do, which they would be allowed to do at this point, would be to not allow the people to come in. I stood there a few weeks ago in Eagle Pass, Texas, and saw 500 individuals come through uh, the river. What this would do is have our National Guard stand there, our Texas DPS troopers, and say, you have to go back from there, right on the line, right on the river, and deny entry. 
and that would send a huge message, not just to uh, the cartels on the Mexican side, but also to the Biden administration that we're not going to tolerate this anymore. Victor Avila, retired special agent with ICE. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. A voting van in Racine, Wisconsin, allows people to cast their ballots near their homes. But a legal complaint says the van is violating the law and favoring Democrat votes. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty says the van visited majority Democrat areas more often than it visited Republican ones. By law, absentee voters must send votes to a location at or near the office of the municipal clerk. But the van collects absentee votes from 21 locations across the city. The legal complaint also says ballots sat in the van overnight, which is a security issue. They're asking courts to order the city clerk to stop using the voting van. As of now, the city plans to use the van again in November's midterm election. And coming up, an initiative is helping get New York City public school students ready to go back to school. Under it, volunteers filled up 8,000 backpacks with scissors, pencils, and other school supplies. And changing the name of a fish? But why? Illinois is rebranding Asian carp, hoping that more people will eat it. It's invasive and it's causing harm. Find out more about the name change and if it's enough after the break. There's still no word on what caused a fatal home explosion in Evansville, Indiana. At least three people were killed as a result of Wednesday's blast. Another victim was taken to the hospital. More than a dozen agencies were called to the scene, including the state fire marshal and the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. Local authorities say the investigation into what caused the blast will likely take a long time. Thousands lost internet service in the early morning hours today. Outage tracking site downdetector.com shows the issue centered around Verizon. Downdetector collects user-submitted errors and info from other sources to track outages. The website shows over 2,000 people reported issues with Verizon this morning starting around 12 a.m. Verizon's mobile and landline services, including broadband, internet, and phone, were all down. The issue occurred across the country in New York City, Miami, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Santa Rosa. North Carolina's Fayetteville, Charlotte, and Fort Bragg were also affected. The Fayetteville Observer reports that during the outage, Verizon recommended finding a Wi-Fi source and using Wi-Fi to make calls. Verizon says the outage was caused by a cable being cut during construction. Down Detector shows the outage subsided at around 4 a.m., but comments still show people reporting no service. The U.S. government is canceling a nearly $900 million grant for SpaceX. The funds were to be used to get higher-speed Internet access to people across rural America. But Wednesday, the Federal Communications Commission said it was withdrawing the multi-million dollar subsidy awarded in December. In a statement, the FCC said it can't afford to subsidize ventures that aren't delivering the promised Internet speeds or are not likely to meet the requirements of the program. The FCC also said it's denying a $1.3 billion award for LTD broadband for failing to obtain proper approvals for service in seven states. Tech companies are uniting to fight cyber attacks. Well-known companies like Amazon, IBM, and Salesforce are trying to create a new standard in cybersecurity. Right now, it's difficult for businesses to share information on cyber threats. Cybersecurity tools and products can all have different data formats. 
As cyber threats unfold, this can hurt companies' ability to understand and adapt. Now businesses plan to develop a single open standard for sharing data about hacking threats. That way, they hope to more effectively detect, investigate, and tackle security issues. The initiative comes as the Biden administration encourages businesses to keep critical infrastructure safe after the cyber attacks in recent years. Volunteers have started filling up nearly 8,000 backpacks with scissors, pencils, and other school essentials. Those items will help prepare New York City public school students for the upcoming school year. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. About 160 of them will be working for the next two days at the Salvation Army's Harlem Community Center. They started on Wednesday. So we're packing a variety of really important and basic school supplies. You can see here we have crayons, we have markers of different types. Of course, in this classroom you'll need things like rulers and notebooks and folders. Um, we're taking all of these supplies and putting them together in these awesome backpacks. T.K. Lee came with a team of co-workers from PricewaterhouseCoopers to help. I think it's important to come together in this time of a uh, you know, trial and a challenging time for everyone and to show everyone that uh, they're not alone and uh, we can show them love uh, and you know, this humanity and then this world is still uh, it's a good place to live. Nonprofit New York Cares teamed up with the Salvation Army Greater New York Division for the initiative. The backpacks will be delivered to 30 schools and community partners in need across Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens and the Bronx. Yes, this is actually very helpful for parents who, this is one less thing they have to worry about, you know, because they have to buy school clothes and, you know, snacks and things like that. So this lightens their hearts, lightens their minds, and this is really helpful for them. The National Retail Federation estimates that parents will spend over $800 on average for clothes, shoes, school supplies, and electronics. One of the things that is top of mind for consumers when they're shopping for back to school or college this season is inflation and higher prices. This is also New York Care's third annual Stand with Students campaign, a donation-supported initiative that includes academic tutoring, school revitalization projects, and book distributions in neighborhoods such as Central Queens, East Brooklyn, and the South Bronx. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Asian carp is getting a rebrand. The abundant fish is threatening the Great Lakes ecosystem, but the Illinois Department of Natural Resources has a solution. They want everyone to start calling the fish kopi. The state hopes that will entice more people to eat it. Here's more. Competitors at the Redneck Fishing Tournament in Bath, Illinois, were recently challenged with catching Asian carp, an invasive fish threatening the Great Lakes ecosystem. And despite hundreds of millions of government funds allocated to fix the problem, the fish population is flourishing. One reason? People may be reluctant to eat fish called Asian carp, says Kevin Irons, chief of fisheries for the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Names mean something. Um, back in the 70s, there was a fish called slimehead, underutilized. But when you go to a restaurant and get orange roughy, everybody's like, oh, it's awesome. So a name means something and it's the same fish. So Illinois got creative with its marketing and decided to rebrand the Asian carp. We've launched a new name, Kopi, to help people consume this delicious fish and, and help us do our work in keeping them out of the waterways. 
the state has launched a new website, choosecopy.com, to promote eating the fish. If you can't beat them, eat them. Dirk Fusick from Chicago's Dirk's Fish and Gourmet Shop has run with the name change. On the counter today, um, we have Kopi burgers. These are actually a teriyaki Kopi burger. This is our probably most popular form of selling because burgers are American. Everybody is familiar with those, and it's an easy way to do it. These are uh, fillets of the Asian carp skinned and ready to go. Fusik also ships the fish, which is gaining a tasty reputation. So people want to try Kopi burgers in Minnesota, California, Texas, and things of that sort. So that's kind of interesting. And the abundant fish population can meet the demand. There's like 20 million pounds of Kopis in Illinois River, so there's a ton of them out there. The reason, uh, one of the reasons the name is copious. So there's copious amounts of copia out there, so we should all eat it. This fish is uh, delicious. Iron says the state of Illinois intends to ask the FDA to formally change the name and is planning to register copy as a trademark. Starkist has asked the Supreme Court to review a lower court ruling. That decision certified a price-fixing lawsuit filed against it as a class action lawsuit. Virginia-based Sarkist, which is owned by South Korea's Dongwon Industries, produces packaged tuna fish for the mass market. It's being sued by several individuals, as well as grocery chains, restaurants, and caterers. They allege the company fixed the price of tuna sold between 2011 and 2013 in the United States. Starkist, Bumblebee, and three tuna industry executives entered guilty pleas. The court certified the creation of three separate classes in the suit, direct purchasers, indirect purchasers, and end payers. But Starkist argues that many of the customers certified didn't experience actual harm as a result of its actions. Starkist also disputes the claim that it conspired to manipulate the list prices for hundreds of different tuna products. Lydia Wheeler at Bloomberg Law mentions something noted by a judge, that companies usually settle in situations like this because of the liability risk. And Red Lobster finds a unique crustacean, and this one won't become someone's dinner. The restaurant chain has discovered two rare orange lobsters. Only about one out of every 30 million lobsters has the unique color, and the seafood chain says it's found two in the last month. An official with Ripley's Aquarium says lobsters get their coloring from the foods they eat. So it makes sense that these two orange lobsters were found in the same part of the Mississippi. Red Lobster named the two Cheddar and Biscuit after their popular side dish. Biscuit is expected to be on display at Ripley's Aquarium in Tennessee. And if you drink protein shakes or use milk alternatives like oat milk, listen up. A long list of nutritional drink brands made by Lion's Magnus have been recalled. They're potentially contaminated by two types of bacteria that cause illness. One of them is actually the same bacteria that prompted the Abbott baby food recall. Some popular items involved include products from Oatly, Horizon Valley Milk, Premier Protein, and Ensure. This recall is voluntary and expands on another recall a couple weeks ago. The FDA says, quote, the products did not meet commercial sterility specifications. Find out what's included in the recall. Go to FDA's website, fda.gov. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, China's foreign ministry spokesperson is facing backlash over a food-related tweet. She shared a map with a number of dumpling restaurants located in Taiwan and claimed it justifies Beijing's stance that the island belongs to China. And the Myanmar ambassador to China passed away earlier this week. He's the fourth foreign ambassador to the nation that has passed away since 2021. Get the details in just a minute here on NTD News.
Welcome back, and if your stomach is rumbling, stay tuned. Next, we have an update on food and what a lineup of restaurants in Taiwan has to do with geopolitical tensions and a tweet from China's foreign ministry. Let's take a closer look. Hua Chunying is a spokesperson and the assistant of China's Minister of Foreign Affairs. A recent Twitter post she shared is taking fire, and it has to do with tensions between Taiwan and Beijing. So here's the message. Baidu Maps, considered the Chinese version of Google Maps, showed that there are 38 Shandong dumpling restaurants and 67 Shanxi noodle restaurants in Taipei. That's Taiwan's capital city. Worth noting, China's Shandong and Shanxi provinces are famous for their dumplings and noodles. The tweet goes on to say, Palates don't cheat. Taiwan has always been a part of China. The long-lost child will eventually return home. Hua posted the tweet at a sensitive timing. That's amid the tension surrounding the Taiwan Strait, when Beijing is angered by U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Her tweet sparked a flurry of mocking comments, with a long list of users using the post's own logic against it. Former U.S. State Department spokesperson Morgan Ortegas also joined in. She quoted Hua's tweet and wrote her own version. Her take reads, there are over 8,500 KFC restaurants in China. Pallets don't cheat. China has always been a part of Kentucky. The long-lost child will eventually return home. But that's not all. Bonnie Glasser is the director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund, a U.S. think tank. She replied to Hua's tweet as well. She wrote that the post shows how desperate Beijing is to identify something that Taiwan and China have in common adding that economic interdependence hasn't promoted political integration and cuisine won't either. A new chief is stepping up to lead the U.S.-Africa Command, his top priority in African soil, to work with partners to counter China's influence on the continent. Here's more. U.S.-Africa Command now has a new commander. The incoming chief, Marine Corps Admiral Michael Langley, succeeds Stephen Townsend. That's as he steps up to lead the U.S. military on the African continent. The Pentagon says countering Chinese influence there remains a top priority. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke as the command was turned over to Langley. Austin said the command has embraced its mission, working shoulder to shoulder with partners to make all nations safer and more prosperous. At the same time, Austin warned about threats coming from China and touched on Beijing's infiltration attempts in Africa. He said China is expanding its military footprint, seeking to build bases in Africa and undermine U.S. relations with African countries, peoples and militaries. Austin noted that Africa deserves the protection of international rules and norms and said that gives the nations of Africa a clear-eyed choice of partners. Does serving as a foreign ambassador to China pose unexpected dangers? This week, a diplomat to the nation passed away, becoming the fourth since 2021. Being a foreign ambassador is considered a prestigious job, but acting as ambassador to China could be something to think twice about. Four ambassadors to China have died since 2021. The latest death was Myanmar's ambassador, who died suddenly on Sunday. Diplomats in Beijing and Myanmar state media report that the cause was likely a heart attack, the same as Ukraine's former ambassador to China, who died in February 2021. His passing came during or shortly after a visit to a Beijing Winter Olympics venue. 
German ambassador Jan Hecker died in September, less than two weeks into his Beijing posting. His cause of death was kept private. While the Philippines' ambassador Jose Santiago Romana died while under quarantine in eastern China in April. Still to come, we have the latest from the leadership contest in the UK. Prime Minister candidate Liz Truss condemns the idea of raising taxes and then using the money to give out benefits. And candidate Rishi Sunak says he'd target government help to the most vulnerable instead of to everyone. And a series of blasts at a Russian airbase in Crimea is causing confusion. Russian and Ukraine are at odds over the cause. Find out more right here on NTD News. And now to the leadership race in the UK. The Conservative Party candidates Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak both addressed the cost of living in their latest speeches. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. In their latest hustings debate in Darlington, the two leadership candidates hashed out their views on tackling the cost of living crisis. Sunak said he wouldn't offer cash payments to every household, but would instead target the most vulnerable. Whereas Truss condemned taxing people just to give the money back. The two contenders have faced growing calls to spell out how they would help with the energy price spike. Consultancy firm Cornwall Insight forecasts that average bills could hit around £3,582 in October, up from £1,971 today before topping £4,200 in the new year. Trust said she understands people are struggling with rising prices. But the first thing we should do as Conservatives is help people have more of their own money. What I don't support is taking people, taking money off people in tax and then giving it back to them in handouts. That to me is Gordon Brown economics. And Trust said we had years of that under Labour and that she will cut taxes as soon as she becomes Prime Minister. She insisted having lower taxes would kickstart the economy by letting more money circulate. A growing economy, she said, would then bring in more tax revenue in the future. However, Sunak said he wants to give more support to people in vulnerable positions. And he claimed that Truss's tax cuts are not enough to help the least well off. Because tax cuts alone are not much good if you're a pensioner who's not earning any extra money. They're not much good if you're working hard on the national living wage because Liz's tax cut is worth about a quid a week for that person. It's worth zero for a pensioner. That's not right. Sunak's previous energy bill support plans are giving a £400 discount to every household regardless of their income. Asked if he is planning similar blanket support, he said he wasn't because he wants to target help towards the most vulnerable. And in a statement, Sunak said that if he becomes Prime Minister, he would act again once it becomes clear how much bills would rise. However, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, who is backing Truss, said the scale of the impending price rises meant it was wrong to suggest the problem could be resolved by government alone. He said, The idea there is a magic wand coming out of Whitehall, no matter who is Prime Minister, including the Labour Party, is fraudulent to say so. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. A series of explosions at a Russian airbase in Crimea. Kiev denies any responsibility and, as Ukrainians, speculate the cause. After deadly explosions rocked a Russian airbase in the annexed Crimean Peninsula on Tuesday and questions over who or what caused the incident, Ukraine denied responsibility for the event deep inside Russian-occupied territory. 
Witnesses said they heard at least 12 blasts. Video obtained by Reuters showed a plume of smoke jetting into the sky. Crimea's health department, along with the Russian governor of Crimea, said at least one civilian had been killed and multiple others injured. But the cause of the blasts are still unclear. Russia's defense ministry brushed off the idea there had been an attack and claimed the blasts came from detonations of stored ammunition. A senior Ukrainian official suggested it was the work of partisan saboteurs, while another suggested Russian incompetence as a possible cause. Crimea is a holiday destination for many Russians. Moscow annexed the peninsula from Ukraine in 2014 as one of the launch pads for its invasion. Zelensky did not directly mention the blasts in his daily video address, but he said it was right that people were focusing on Crimea. NASA says Russia is committed to the International Space Station beyond 2024. That's despite threats to stop its support of the ISS. In July, Russian leaders implied they would leave the space station after 2024, prompted by tensions over their invasion of Ukraine. But now the Russian space agency is saying perhaps something was lost in translation. NASA maintains it has a good working relationship with the agency and will even fly a Russian cosmonaut on a SpaceX rocket next month. Recently, NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, the European Space Agency, the Japan Exploration Agency, and the Russian Space Agency had a planning meeting. Each of them confirmed they would continue to work with their individual governments on planning missions beyond 2024. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, drought and high temperatures are increasing salt levels in Italy's largest delta, and it's causing problems for clam fishing in one of Europe's most important wetlands. And the UK is undertaking a massive project to replenish the country's oyster population, but the purpose is not food-related. Find out more after the break right here on NTD News. Good to have you back with us. A Brazilian woman has been arrested on allegations of having conned her own mother out of 142 million U.S. dollars. Police recovered 16 paintings they they say were stolen, including three from an iconic modernist painter valued at almost $138 million. Sabine Cole Baghichi is accused of defrauding 82-year-old Genevieve Baghichi, the widow of an art collector, out of money, artwork, and jewelry. Police say the scam began in 2020 when Genevieve was approached by a supposed psychic with prophecies of her daughter's imminent death. It's believed personal information provided by her daughter was used to scam the distraught mother into transferring money to pay for spiritual treatment. All the while, Sabine and an accomplice were removing artwork from her house. After a year, the victim turned to the police. Police say seven people are suspected of involvement, facing charges of embezzlement, robbery, extortion, false imprisonment, and criminal association. Drought and high temperatures have raised the salt content in Italy's largest delta. The spot marks where the Po River feeds into the Adriatic Sea, south of Venice. But higher salt levels are causing problems for clam fishing in one of Europe's most important wetlands. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Fishermen retrieve nets of clams from the shallow waters of Italy's largest delta. But the harvest is not what it once was. At least one-third of the clams in the Po Delta have died off. 
In recent years, clam fishing has changed because there is a lot of drought. In my opinion, the necessary excavations are not being done to restore the lagoon bed. The salinity is increasing because slowly you can see that the sea is going up towards the river. From the sea, it goes up. The amount of water entering the delta from the Po River is at an all-time low due to a drought. Deltas are an area of exchange between fresh and salt water but the exchange is becoming more one-directional. The sure thing is that there have been more die-offs than the other years, but for different causes. But now, as the time goes on, you can really see the lagoon suffering. As I said before, both due to poor exchange of water between the sea and the lagoon that creates very big problems inside the farms, and also because of the temperatures that are rising higher than usual. Inland penetration of saltwater has increased from 6 miles in the 1980s to an astounding 24 miles this year. For clam growers, excessive salinity, high temperatures, and a resulting spread of algae are suffocating the mollusk. With these problems of very high temperatures and poor water circulation within the lagoon, the water in the lagoon heats up very, very strongly, setting the stage for the emergence of many species and seaweed that can break off from the bottom and go around the lagoon, then settle, choking the clams. According to the Coldoretti Agricultural Lobby, one-third of this year's stock of Vongole Virachi clams has already died off. The die-off has created economic difficulties. Fishermen are worried more losses would leave them with nothing to sell later in the season. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A nationwide project is underway to replenish the UK's native oyster population. The Wild Oysters Project has introduced more than 140 oyster nurseries. Oysters can filter seawater and have a huge ecological value. Let's find out more from NTD's Eddie Aitken. The Wild Oysters Project, led by the Zoological Society of London, the Blue Marine Foundation and British Marine, aimed to restore the native oysters. The initiative began a year ago to introduce oysters to the UK coastal areas. Celine Gamble, manager of the project, said there is already a hive of activity below the water's surface. We've found over 27,000 mobile marine animals swimming and living in and around our 141 oyster nurseries that we have around the UK. And that's a really nice indication showing that the project is helping more than just the oysters. It's actually providing a home for marine animals. Suspended underneath marina pontoons, these little shellfish are attracting many other species to this underwater habitat. We've identified 65 different species, and those species include the critically endangered European eel, common prawn, shore crab, um, and some really kind of weird and wonderful species, for example, pipefish, which is basically the same family as a seahorse, but it's actually straight-bodied. Native oysters have been fished from the UK waters since the Roman times but their populations have depleted due to overfishing and habitat loss. The oyster nurseries, each housing 27 mature oysters, act as a maternity ward, releasing the next generation of oyster larvae into the ocean. The European native oyster has declined by 95% across Europe, and there's a range of different reasons for this, um, including habitat loss, disease, overfishing and overharvesting. And we're working with a really small kind of remaining population in the UK, which is what inspired us to kind of set up the project to try and restore native oysters in our three restoration sites. Oysters fuse together as they grow, forming rock-like reefs. Seabed structure and, and substrate is, is incredibly important to, to native oysters. 
When native oysters reproduce, they release a larvae into the water system. This swims around for, for up to two weeks looking for a hard substrate to settle on. Um, without that hard substrate, there's nowhere for juvenile oysters to settle on and grow, um, and you just can't regrow that population that's been lost over time. Oysters also have a huge ecological value, acting as natural water purifiers by filtering and removing pollution from seawaters and oceans. It's estimated that in a year, the 4,000 oysters could have filtered almost the equivalent of half a million bathtubs of water. You have an oyster population, it's not just a single oyster as, as a species, but oysters actually form a complex 3D matrix of a habitat. Um, and it's this habitat that they provide that, that's so important to other species. Gamble said the oysters in the project are in support of biodiversity, not for eating. However, in the future, if we are successful with the restoration projects that are running around the UK, our hope is to be able to have a kind of healthy and resilient population of native oysters. And who knows, at that point, maybe um, they'll be in sustainable enough numbers to be able to eat them uh, once more. The three restoration sites are Conway Bay on the northwest coast of Wales, Firth of Clyde on the west coast of Scotland, and Tyne and Weir in northeast England. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Swiss Army helicopters are airlifting water to thousands of thirsty farm animals. The summer's soaring temperatures are scorching the country's alpine meadows, and the lower rainfall is prompting the Army to swoop in with the much-needed refreshment. The country wants to prevent the drought from causing feed shortages later in the year. The two-week operation is now underway with three Super Puma helicopters and six helicopters total. They're refilling the near-empty reservoirs used by farmers for cows and other animals. Overall, they're transporting over 100,000 gallons of water. A similar operation took place during the droughts of 2015 and 2018. Without the emergency water supply, the animals would have to graze in the lowlands. Normally, those fields are used for winter hay. An American pizza chain is pulling out of Italy. Domino's Pizza is shutting down the last of its locations in the home of pizza. The news comes after Domino's opened as many as 33 locations there starting in 2015, though through a franchising agreement with an Italian company, Eat Pizza Spa. The company planned to open as many as 800 locations and distinguish itself with a structured national delivery service and American-style toppings, including pineapple. But things didn't go as planned. Domino's faced tough competition from mom-and-pop pizza makers who expanded delivery services during the pandemic. Those challenges got worse once restaurants reopened after pandemic shutdowns. The company also sought protection from creditors after it ran out of cash and fell behind on its debt obligations. And after the break, we time travel to the late 19th century Wild West for a shooting contest in Washington State. To kick off the event, participants even dressed up as cowboys. Find out more in just a minute here on NTD News. If you happen to pass by the Renton Fish and Game Club in Washington State on Saturday, you may have thought you traveled back to the late 19th century. The venue was hosting an annual cowboy shooting competition. Let's take a look. The Renton Fish and Game Club, about half an hour from Seattle, played host to cowboy action shooting this past Saturday. It's an annual firearms competition that sees its participants dress up in cowboy costume. To compete, they use vintage firearms on various old-fashioned themed courses. 
The Renton Club is part of a global single-action shooting society which sets rules and regulations for the sport. Course of fire usually entails two six-shot revolvers, only loaded with five each, however, uh, a lever-action rifle in pistol caliber, and a shotgun. You can use either a double-barrel shotgun with or without hammers, or uh, uh, if you want to use a pump shotgun, it has to be an 1897 Winchester or a copy thereof. The shooting sport is based on cowboys and the idea of the Old West. Competitors use firearms that were prevalent in 1873 or copies of them. It's a contest that requires attention to detail, speed, and accuracy. And it's a timed event. So if you shoot the stage correctly, your total time is your score for that stage. If you miss a target, just flat miss it, they add five seconds to your score. If you shoot it outside the prescribed order, they add 10 seconds to your score. So, you know, uh, you go as fast as you can without making any errors. Many competitors return each year and remain devoted to the community. Aside from keeping score, they revel in the social aspect of the event. We all have the same um, commonality in the sense that we enjoy the sport, we learn from each other, we share our tactics with each other, we are competing either in age categories or in dress categories like I am, but we're still there rooting for each other. I'm an extrovert and be around other people, dress up, act kind of goofy, and not be laughed at because we're all doing the same thing. The event even made room for a child competitor, 10-year-old Braxton Buddy Wainwright per year. Yesterday, tennis legend Serena Williams lost to Switzerland's Belinda Bencic in her first match since announcing her upcoming retirement. Williams' defeat came in the second round of the WTA 1000-level event in Toronto. After the match, she referenced her story in Vogue, saying, quote, Like I said in my article, I'm terrible at goodbyes, but goodbye, Toronto. She was adorned with gifts on the court for herself and her daughter, Olympia. Williams is entered to play at the Western and Southern Open in Ohio ahead of the U.S. Open. The event starts next week. The World Cup in Qatar could kick off a day earlier than scheduled if FIFA's ruling bureau agrees. They are looking to push the ceremony forward before the match starts. The original plan was to hold the ceremony on August 21st before Qatar's first match, but this put two other matches before the opening ceremony. A match between Senegal and the Netherlands and one between England and Iran were scheduled to take place before the ceremony starts. If the ceremony is moved to August 20th before the matches, Qatar's first match will also be pushed forward to take place on the 20th. The heads of FIFA's six regional confederations and the president still need to vote, but they're expected to agree to the plan. People living in Qatar said they like the idea since it will put their team in the spotlight when the tournament begins. And LEGO is going big to celebrate its 90th birthday today and unveiled a massive birthday cake made of LEGOs featuring a whopping 94,128 bricks and pieces. This video shows all the work employees did to build the nine-layer cake, one layer for each of the nine decades of LEGO play. It's on display at the LEGO house in Denmark. The company is also celebrating with its first World Play Day, complete with events around the world to encourage and help families and communities play more. Danish carpenter Oli Kirk Christiansen founded the company in 1932, and it's still family-owned. The Lego brick in its current form was first manufactured in 1958. Oli's son helped develop it. 
The company produces roughly 100 billion bricks each year and employs around 24,000 people worldwide. Lego, by the way, comes from the Danish phrase Lagot, which means play well. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Thank you.